This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. You go back a few years, Premier John Horgan, back when he was the NDP opposition leader, he was all about giving lots of money to the teachers' union. I remember him showing up at some of those union rallies and he stood up there in front of these teachers on strike saying we got your back don't back down keep on going just encouraging them as they were out uh, on strike behind a picket line and then his answer for how to solve the impasse just put a ton of money on the table so horgan said take 300 million bucks take it out of contingency funds okay those funds you usually spend on fighting forest fires whatever, just get the money from somewhere, dump it on the table, and give it to the teachers. That's what Horgan said when he's the opposition leader. So I guess in some ways you can't blame these teachers for feeling like they're being led on because now here they are, Horgan's the premier, the NDP in power, labor-friendly government, and it's almost like we're going back to the barricades here. Now, the talks have been going on with the mediator. That mediator is still in place, so that's going on. That's a good thing. But it's been going on for like a year. Uh, the teachers have been out of contract without a contract since last summer. I think something's got to give, and maybe we're heading to another strike. Now it comes down to money. Like I said, the teachers are looking for a hefty uh, wage increase. They say they're underpaid, especially you compare them to other teachers. Here's the hot question: Should BC teachers settle for a two percent raise? Two percent. Just like the other BC public sector unions have accepted. Would you say, yes, that's what they should take? No special deal for teachers? Or would you say, no, teachers are underpaid. They should get more than that. At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that one today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line too. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-BUZZ. Two eight nine nine. Like I said, we're talking about the uh, teachers' situation now. There's still a mediator in there, so that's the good news. The bad news is this thing has been dragging on for months, and it just seems to be kind of a tougher tone coming from the teachers' union right now. Are we heading back to the barricades here? Should parents brace? for yet another teacher strike in B.C. Let's get the take of Keith Baldry right now, Global News Bureau Chief of the Legislature. Keith, thanks a lot for coming in. Hey, Smitty. You've been on Twitter on this one, yeah. and you do an, uh, an incredible job kind of making the case for the situation that we're facing here with the teachers' negotiations. You get a lot of teachers upset, I yep. noticed, on, on Twitter, especially the union activists. On both What's sides. going on here? So uh, yesterday, two teachers emailed me saying they just come from a union meeting informed that... Uh, there was going to, uh, strike votes going to be held at some point soon, and that uh, what's being contemplated is rotating uh, strikes in school districts, oh. not a province-wide walkout. Now, I put that on Twitter last night. A lot of teachers upset that, that they don't want to go on strike. They don't want to lose their paycheck. Other teacher activists saying, you don't know what you're talking about. There's been no such talk. Today, this morning, I was given a copy of a memo from VCTF President Terry Mooring to the union locals, presidents, outlining in detail the job action that's being uh, she's recommending to oh. the, the representative assembly oh. that will meet at the end of this month, 300 people in Richmond. And what she's recommending is a series, uh, sort of a four-step process, uh, starting with uh, no more... Uh, 
uh, parent-teacher meetings, yeah. uh, anecdotal report cards, no playground supervision, uh, those types of things. What about no, no supervising kids at sports clubs uh, and stuff? It doesn't seem to be totally okay. clear on that point, yeah. uh, but it's sort of an escalating series of job action culminating in rotating strikes oh, in school man. districts, withdrawal of services. When would now, this start? That, well, uh, I, I was talking to BCTF uh, Communications today. Rich Overgaard tells me nothing's going to be happen when the mediator is still in in place. They cannot legally strike no. or do job no. action if there's a mediator. If there's a mediator, in there. you can't do that. Right. So it has to be a strike vote under the Labor Relations Board. That can't happen until the mediator bu- books out. Yes. He, uh, David Schaub's the mediator. He's still there. Uh, so the the document from Terry Mooring says no strike vote before February 15th, which tells me they've February got 15th. some meetings scheduled before then. But it does talk about a strike vote after that and a, and a withdrawal of services on on various levels, culminating in that uh, uh, rotating strike. Not a general province-wide walkout, which we've seen in the past. So this seems to be a little more well thought out uh, and very strategic, but it's, it's going to be interesting how this plays out because uh, if you're a parent with a kid in the school, I think you've got to yeah. be a little concerned. I, well, i got two kids in the public school yep. system, so uh, you know it certainly hits close to home for me, too. Uh, we've gone around this mulberry bush so many times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get deja vu on this kind of stuff because it's happened so often. I remember the last strike, as I know you do as well. They were out for a long time, and the teachers lost a lot of money. I yep. felt really sorry for a lot of teachers who were out in that picket line, not getting paid, getting very minimal strike pay from the union. And then they end up with a raise, and they didn't really catch up what they lost. They ended up basically in the hole on it. Yeah, you know, you usually don't catch up by no. going on strike because yeah. you, know, you lose two weeks' pay. You're not going to get that back in a you know 2% wage hike or yeah. 3% or 4%. Uh, so, no, this is uh, heard a lot from teachers last night on Twitter who do not want to go on strike, do right. not support the union in this endeavor. Having said that, I mean, the union is in a bit of a uh, between a rock and a hard place here, uh, they won't budge on their own negotiating position. Uh, but they've got Which to find. Is, a, what are the what are the t- uh, issues here at the table? Well, I'm told <coughs> the TF has more than 40 uh, proposals at the table. Uh, only two have been signed off on with the employer. So there's been really no movement at the negotiating table. Carol James again, Justin, our colleague Justin Hunter in the Global Mail today has a piece about Car- uh, Finance Minister Carol James saying there's no more money to right. put on the table. Yeah. Sorry, the offer is what it is. Two percent uh, a year. Two percent a year, yeah. uh, plus you can find some ways to, to increase that if you have some trade-offs. Uh, the net increase to the budget can't be more than 2% a year, but uh, you can, as we saw in the Saanich School District, uh, some of those people in Saanich, uh, QP support workers are getting something like 10% a year be over, over three years because they're able to trade off some of the benefits, but the TF, so far, no signs they're willing to trade off anything. Okay, okay so the government offering 2% a year raise over a three-year contract the teachers want more, right? They say they're underpaid mm-hmm. compared to other teachers in the rest of Canada. So what percentage raise is the union looking for? Haven't, we, they haven't tabled a specific figure publicly. Probably but a lot more than 2%. Oh, a heck of a lot more. I think we're talking more like 4%, uh, tw- you know, 12% over three years. They want to catch up to other provinces. Uh, yeah. the, the, they got a point? I mean, are teachers underpaid compared oh, to the I other think provinces? Can, I think you can argue teachers are underpaid. I, I just think uh, the problem that BCTF has is that for years they've been lumped in with every other public sector union. Yeah. And all public sector unions are treated the same from the government, whether it's NDP or the BC Liberals. They all get the same pay increase. Uh, pattern su- bargaining subject, the subject to trade-offs and yeah. uh, you could argue teachers should be paid more than support workers in terms of a wage increase but that just doesn't get it done the other thing that's a big cost item for the government here is class size and mm-hmm. the teachers want those strict class size rules brought into this contract remember when the liberals 
tore up their contract yep. and stripped out all those class size limits. They brought in bigger classes. The teachers want this written into a new contract that we want these smaller, shrunk down classes. That, of course, means you got to hire more teachers. Mm-hmm. So it's just money, money, money. And there's, is there any room for the government to budge on that? It just seems to me like Harold James has kind of dug in here and this government's dug in on this thing. Well, the, the, the employer has offered a rollover t- uh, contract. And if you ke- remember, the, the uh, Supreme Court of Canada decision reinstituted that language into the contract. So Right. The, the language co- that was stripped out by the liberals, yeah. that was put back in. And- but this government is saying, wait a sec, okay, we understand that, but that's not carved in stone. No. That doesn't mean we can't negotiate these terms. That was, their, that was the original bargaining position from the employers, that this is not carved in stone, we want right. to revisit this. Since then, they the last offer from the employer, BCPC, was a rollover contract, which is status quo. Take the contract as it is with the current language, which is reinstated from the Supreme Court of Canada ruling, and add 2% a year. Uh, the TF, uh, so far, that talks broke down on that point. And the TF is arguing that was not a formal offer. It wasn't, and we may still get to that, but the, the employer is arguing that it was a rollover contract, just status quo with 2% a year hike in your compensation, and class size language remains the same, which is the old language brought back. The employer is arguing at the beginning, that old language from 1999 is out of date. It doesn't reflect the current situation in, in BC public schools. It has to be changed. And that's one of the, that's probably the key breaking point between the two sides. Okay, speaking to Global News Bureau Chief Keith Baldry here about the situation with BC Teachers Union. You mentioned that memo that you got a hold of, mm-hmm. Keith, outlining potential rotating strikes. Have, have you reported this yet? Are you breaking news here that this is I'm, brand new? I'm Just get this? Telling you right now. Okay, we're breaking news here on the <laughs> show today. So this is a, a, a memo that you got from, it's from Terry Mooring. Terry Mooring the, to the uh, union president. Local presidents. Okay. Uh, it's stamped confidential, but it's wow. interesting. Two teachers sent it to me, which suggests, again, I think there's not quite the solidarity in the teachers union right now that we've seen in the past uh, contract rounds. Okay, where does this go from here? I mean, are they talking or are they Yeah, they're supposed to be a meeting yeah. with the mediator uh, f- uh, first two weeks of February my understanding okay. uh, so and again nothing's going to happen as long as the mediator is in place right, and there's right. no sign the mediator is walking away but uh, the TF is trying to find a way to put pressure on the employer and the government and this also includes a, a very detailed communications plan pressure MLAs pressure the NDP caucus uh, social media activism uh, a number of fronts but it's, uh, it's it leads to the ultimate which is a rotating strike thing but we're a long ways from that but it's conceivable yeah. before the end of the school year you're going to see all this play out this union's gone through so many strikes. I went, do they got a lot of money to pay teachers strike pay no, if they I, walk out? I don't think they do. A teacher uh, sent me a screenshot last year of the last BCTF convention that had the strike pay fund uh, that would only cover three weeks pay. So uh, oh, yeah, there's yeah. not an extended uh, strike fund here for teachers. A breaking news this morning, uh, Keith obtaining a internal union memo from the union teachers union president, Terry Mooring, outlining a plan for potential rotating strikes but as you we were just talking off air about this they have to have a strike vote first yeah. and there's no scheduled strike vote nope. right so <clears throat> the union would set the strike vote date but they haven't done that yet no it would have to be once the mediator withdraws his services it can be right. a strike vote when he's on the scene and there's no sign he's he's leaving so the mem- <clears throat> memo from terry mooring uh, contains recommendations that will go to the representative assembly 300 teacher uh, bctf members will meet in richmond at the end of the month and we'll, they'll vote on this memo from her it's a four it's stage four four stages of job action now i want to read you the stage three job action at, yeah. at a date determined by the executive committee and with the authorization of our province-wide bctf membership vote each local in consultation with the federation will determine a plan to fully 
uh, withdraw one-fifth of the members, work sites, or communi- communities in the local on each day of the week on a uh, school-by-school rotating basis in a school district with a, with a five-day week, uh, no wow. partial school. So that's stage three. Stage four, sub- subject to a subsequent BCTF membership vote, uh, full withdrawal of services province-wide at a date determined by the executive committee and with uh, the authorization of another province-wide okay. BCTF membership vote. So it sounds like there's going to have to be two votes. One vote... Uh, Authorizes the road, uh, the uh School by school or district by district, yeah, with 20, rotating. Twenty percent of teachers on yeah. strike at any given. And day. then another vote would have to authorize a province-wide uh, strike. So we're right. we're still a long ways from this, but I think it's good to put parents on notice that this is now under active consideration from the BCTF, which has been sort of uh, quiet for some time. Uh, but this is going. It's a very detailed memo from Terry Morin that I have, and it's yeah. uh, it's got a lot of information of withdrawal of services on various levels, up to and including full-scale okay. walkout. Okay, phone lines are open six zero four two. 8-0-98-98, star ninety eight ninety eight toll free on your cell. Victor in Surrey, hi. Yeah, hello. Look at uh, I think everybody should realize teachers do a lot of things. Okay, so let's let's you know they've got to have some education there. They make sure that the kids that are in the school get breakfast. Okay, they're looking for kids that are being abused. They they do uh, they're coaching um, teams that they're not getting paid for. So, I mean, our greatest resource is our young people. Okay, well, you're not going to get any argument from me that teachers do an important job, okay? And I I think you just outlined, but what are you saying? They deserve a bigger raise than 2% a year? Yes. Yeah, how much do they get? Oh, I I, I can't say what would be fair. I mean, I I don't know the mathematics, but, uh, you know. You know, uh, the mathematics are the important thing here for the government, Keith. Like like a 2% raise a year is what all these other unions have settled for. 75% of the public sector unions have settled for this this, uh, negotiating mandate. Right. The problem the TF has here is, we've talked about this before, the Me Too clauses that exist in other union contracts, which is if another union gets more than our 2% without... Uh, trade-offs, then we get that too. A one percent, a one percent across the board increase to public sector unions costs about two hundred and seventy million dollars to the provincial treasury. Yikes! You start doing the math. Carol James's budget, as we saw in the last quarterly update, is a razor-thin surplus of less than two hundred yeah. million dollars. A anything more than two percent would wipe out that surplus in her next budget and would put the budget into deficit. Rick in South Surrey, hi. Hi there, guys. Uh, I echo the last caller. I mean, our most important resource as a society is educating the people that are going to be taking this over. I get very frustrated uh, when we get the government, the unions, ignoring the the students and then the teachers, quite frankly. One of the big issues I see, I have three three kids in the K-12 system, is our inefficient way of dealing with special needs where in one classroom one child can have up to five TAs that one child distracts the entire class and takes all the teachers uh, concentration and as a result other kids in the class suffer and I'm not suggesting we move away from integration and, and working together but we need to do it more efficiently and on a side note one in five children in british columbia goes to school with no food we have the highest child poverty rate in the the country one of them okay thank you for the call the the issue of special needs kids i mean you hear this frequently from schools and i think the caller's got a point there 
But, Huge issue. Yeah, and what's the what's the, posi- the bargaining position on that? There, Teachers want more uh, teaching assistance? No, it's a little more complicated than that because teaching assistants are covered by QP. Um, yeah, I've always detected a bit of a bit of tension there between the BCTF and QP because uh, you've got two unions in the same classroom, and uh, it, it seems to be a, a somewhat. Tense do they want? Do they want limits on fewer special needs kids per class? Well, there's, what's going on now? There's a debate over in the education ministry whether they actually revisit and fundamentally change the funding model of for yeah. special needs kids to go from what is now a diagnostic uh, situation to what's called a prevalence model, which is based on sort of general trends in population. It's a source of a lot of controversy within the BC Teachers Federation and the sure. education community itself. And, and Rob Fleming, the education minister, has not signaled which way he's going to go on this. Bill in Coquitlam, hi. Hey, uh, hey, guys. Good morning. You know, it's a very complicated file with a lot of uh, social and economic issues side involved in it. i just like to add my, my bit here is uh, given the nature of how labor contracts have been working out in B.C. over the last number of years, uh, that in, it'd be imperative that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And here's what I'm saying, that uh, if this is what we're having labor take, then I want our legislators to be on the same program. All I gotta say. Thanks, guys. Okay, okay, thank you. Well, I guess he's talking about MLA salaries there. I don't know. I mean, MLAs get a, a salary increase pegged to inflation. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's kind of apples and oranges. I mean, again, go back to the central point. The TF is part of a negotiating mandate all public sector unions are part of, and there's no escaping that. So the only way for the TF to get more than the 2% is one of two things. Either the NDP government uh, says, okay, fine, to heck with uh, balanced budgets. We're going to go into a deficit situation. Uh, Carol James has rejected that out of hand. That's not going to happen. Uh, or they're treated differently uh, than other public sector unions. And so far, that um, perhaps a case can be made for that, but the nurses can make that case as well. I mean, nobody uh, will dispute the value of a nurse in uh, in our healthcare system. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a troubling situation okay. for the TF, but I don't see a way out. Good scoop by you yep. today. Thank you for coming in. That's Keith Baldry, uh, Global News Bureau Chief at the Legislature, with that memo he obtained this morning outlining possible rotating strikes in the B.C. school system. Let's talk about one of the hottest stories in our province right now, and that's the Coastal Gas Link natural gas pipeline in northern British Columbia. Now, this is the pipeline that would pump natural gas to the proposed Canada LNG mega project and its terminal there in Kitimat. This is a very important project to the John Horgan government here provincially, is also supported by the federal government. This pipeline has passed all the approvals. It's got all the permits. Uh, the company's been trying to put the pipe in the ground. As you likely know, uh, work being blocked by the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation in northern BC. Five hereditary chiefs there. Uh, trying to block this pipeline. They're getting a lot of support from environmental groups. Let's get the other side of this now, because I don't think the other side often gets enough attention, and those are the First Nations, the indigenous leaders in our province who support this project, who want to see jobs and investment in their communities. Let me introduce you now to Chris Sankey. He's a former band counselor with the Lax Qualam First Nation and Prince Rupert. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Chris. Hi, uh, thank you so much, Mike. Pleasure to have you. Thanks yeah. a lot, Chris, for coming on. Tell me uh, what you think about this uh, this pipeline, this natural gas pipeline. Do you support that project? 
I do. I, I, I mean, it's going to give significant benefits back to the First Nations that have signed on. Um, I think that uh, it's clearly showing what it's done for a lot of the nations along the route, providing jobs and opportunity. And more importantly, it's it's uh, demonstrating that you could have your own social service revenue and you could put those revenues back to good use for social social programs, housing, infrastructure, education, health. Uh, it just right. could be used for a number of things that could help benefit the communities and help many of the communities that are struggling uh, to, to I guess, uh, set a different path for their communities to pro- path to prosperity. I think this is a good thing. When, when you talk, we, we often hear, Chris, that the company involved here has negotiated benefit-sharing agreements with all 20 of the First Nations along that pipeline route. That represents about 13,000 Indigenous people, by the way. In, in your experience, do most people, do most Indigenous people and First Nations people in that, in that pipeline corridor, do they support this project? Do they want to see that pipe go in the ground and they can get some of the benefits from it? Yeah, look, in speaking with uh, some represent- representatives uh, from some of these communities that signed the benefits agreement, they they think it's going to help significantly uh, their communities get out of poverty or deal with social issues such as uh, drugs and alcohol, um, traumatic experiences from, unfortunately, the residential school effect. These are all dollars that they could put towards the help with those social um, challenges that we have faced. Uh, for a very long, long time, I think it's very beneficial. I know in our experiences, when we were uh, in the past negotiating with P&W LNG, the benefit agreements that could have come back to the community was significant. In fact, it was a $2.3 billion IBA agreement would have transformed our community for the greater good. Okay, what about the environment? Like, There's a lot of environmental groups that support the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs, as you know, Chris, and they say, look, I mean, we're facing a climate emergency on our planet. We got to stop developing oil and gas if we're going to do anything about it. And so that's why they want this pipeline shut down. What do you say about kind of the environmental impact of these projects? Look, I, I would hope that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, how can we destroy the planet? That's, that's not the case. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of work put into understanding the impacts of uh, these development projects. And one of the first things that First Nations want to make sure they get a handle on is what is the pollution? What is the impacts, uh, both pros and cons? All that stuff is in the beginning of every negotiation. In fact, uh, in our experience, it's the only way we would engage is making sure that the first and foremost, the topic of discussion was the environment. Yeah. So, I, I yeah. again, I could only speak from my experience that uh, before we even talked numbers or contracts or agreements, the biggest thing that we wanted to make sure was protecting the environment. And so what at the time, at the time I was selected, we made sure that our fisheries and stewardship was working together, making sure that these issues and concerns were going to be addressed. And right. they did so inextensively. And, and, I, and I was actually proud to say that um, we negotiated extensively with the province and Canada on the first ever environmental bargaining agreement at the time. It was the first of its history. So I, I believe that the, the industry and the First Nations that they've engaged along with their negotiators, that was the first thing that was on their yeah. agendas to making sure the environment was going to be protected while we grow the economy. Okay, I'm speaking to Chris Sankey. He's a former band counselor with the Laxqualam First Nation. Let me bring another voice in here now. Candace George is on the line. She's a member of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hiya, Candace. Hi. 
Candace, thanks so for doing this. I actually, I'm, I'm a member of Stellatin First Nation. Oh, okay. The community, I'm registered with Stellatin, but I am Wet'suwet'en. I have Wet'suwet'en ancestry on both my mom and my dad's side. Okay, do you support this family. pipeline? Do I support the pipeline? Yeah. I, I support doing what's right for our people. Mm-hmm. I support um, protecting our territories and doing what's right to protect our land and territories. I support um, just doing things the right way and working together to better all all of our people. And do you think that that natural gas pipeline can be achieved while achieving all of that? I believe so, yes. Yeah. I believe so, yes. I was a part of... um, Two years ago, I was a part of a youth and elders program, and it was called ITALK. And through that program, I had seen firsthand, and, you know, being an Indigenous woman and a a Wet'suwet'en, even though I'm registered with Stilatin community, um, I wanted to be able to have my voice and see the actual root and and work with work with um, environmentalists and discuss you know what what plants are important and and why it's important. So right. I had that opportunity when I was um, with the ITALK program, and it what was a youth and elder program. What do you think about the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en and, and, and blocking this, uh, the construction of the pipeline and their opposition to it? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, my goodness. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, What's your main thought on it? My main thought yeah. is that we are a matriarchal society, mm-hmm. and I know that being Wet'suwet'en, I know our Wet'suwet'en laws, and I know our Bachelet system, and... We are a matriarchal society. That's what I know. And I respect and honor all matriarchs. Okay, it's all, am, it's, it's all, it's all men, though. It's all male uh, hereditary chiefs are opposed to the pipeline, though, right? They have, they have female supporters, but mm-hmm. the male chiefs are the um, ones who... The male chiefs hold the names of the territories... And they oversee those territories. But yes, um, they are mostly male. And we are a matriarchal society. And I know that things have changed. My guests, Chris Sankey and Candace George, they are two indigenous leaders who support the pipeline. Chris, let me go back to you. When we talked before, I I remember you saying quite memorably, memorably to me that when these companies come into the traditional territories of indigenous people that you just don't want them to, you know, you don't give them a blank slate and just say, you come in and do whatever you want. You got to negotiate with them, right. To protect your own interests. Would you say? Well, absolutely. I mean, we don't let no community for that matter or any nation should allow that to happen at all. I think they have to have an understanding that if you're coming into the territory of the respected communities, you're going to negotiate with, you need to respect the, the traditional values and who we are as indigenous people to the land. And uh, I know in my experience that the first thing they wanted to do was to make sure that that was heard and that it was respected. Um, There was some bumps and bruises along the way. Um, Initially, when they first started out with negotiating with our community, 
But uh, as we took a stronger position on the environment, uh, the more things changed. And uh, a lot of the times, a lot of these companies that come into their respective territories, they're not aware of the political uh, minefield that they're entering. They're not aware of our own traditional laws. And especially when you're getting uh, companies that are coming in from overseas, they're not aware of even the Canadian law for that most part. And I would even go as far as saying that some of the, the companies that have come in had just got bad advice when they were approaching our communities. But that all changed um, over time. And look, it's not it's not saying it was perfect, but they ended up respecting what we wanted to do. And, you know, people were either for or against. Um, in our case, when we did our, our vote, the very first time it was 100% no. And then the next time uh, we kind of put the information out there pertaining to the impacts of the environment and what it meant. And at the time, of course, Florida Bank was a contentious issue because it was at the mouth of the Skina. And I mean, of course, everybody had their concerns and opinions on the matter, but we were able to find a way forward and to demonstrate we could work together and some good things could happen in the best interest of the community. Let's take a phone call on the open line. Greta in Burnaby. Hi, thanks for waiting. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, great to hear from you, uh, Chris and Candace. Um, Candace just said that uh, some of the matriarchs support the pipeline, um, but she didn't really say why. Um, and why are we really not hearing uh, that side of it? It seems unfair that there's folks supporting it, but that's not coming through. Okay, do we have Candace back in the line, guys? No, okay, we, we actually just lost her, her line connection there, so we're trying to get her back on the line. But Chris, I mean, you know, back to you for a second. I mean, obviously there are divisions uh, among Indigenous people and First Nations themselves about these projects. What's it like for you uh, as a guy who's willing to go public and say, look, I, I support these projects. I think we should I think we should do them. I think they're good for our community. Do you get any pushback from people in the community saying, like, what are you doing? You know, maybe you should you should not support these companies or these projects. Uh, yeah, look, uh, when you're in these roles of uh, your elected body, you always got to walk the line and uh, I found when I was in that role, I always had to be extremely careful on how I made, you know, how I came out publicly in support of these projects. And I felt that was a little bit unfair. If I really believed that uh, I, these projects could make a significant impact for the better for our communities, I should have been able to take a stronger role. And then more and more, as I started to understand what the impacts were going to be to our community, the more and more I started to realize that this was the way to go. But of course, taking care of the environment while we grow the economy. But I, I found, though, when I um, took a more of a position of in favor of this, there was so there was a lot of very personal attacks uh, to me online on social media, and uh, I even got as far as uh, actually, quite frankly, I got as far as it got as far as death threats, uh, fake wow. email accounts, fake Facebook accounts, uh, wow. calling me a sellout. They were calling me every sort's name, and where I I had had enough is. Um, these individuals that are wanting to oppose everything uh, were attacking my family and kids and they're making awful remarks on social media that that's completely didn't reflect who I am. Uh, I'll be the first to fight for indigenous communities and and be there. And it it takes a toll on you. And I don't think the general public realizes how difficult it is to be in a role of an elected body to represent your community because you're not just representing just anybody representing your friends, your family. These are people you've known all your life. And then so when you have community settings and meetings, uh, people tend to get personal. Um, yeah. And it just took a toll. So I, I, yeah, I bet it, 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 it. I bet it does. I, I bet it is, it is tough for someone in your position to speak up in favor of these projects when the community is divided. 
Uh, Chris, let me go back to you. We just got a minute left here, sadly. Uh, why do you think these projects are important? Like you mentioned to me in an earlier discussion that we had that you're a guy who grew, grew up in a, in a poor community, right? I mean, you grew up in poverty, right? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the community was poor, but I did. Unfortunately, um, my parents did the best they could with the resources they had at the time. Um, and, you know, I was one of those kids that uh, was had to work extremely hard to, to make a go of it. And so I just kind of learned that from my parents. Um, they both were shore workers at the time. One worked in the uh, log industry for a bit. And, of course, as you know, and as everybody knows, it's taken a hit. So for me, it was the ability to be able to transform not, not just your community or the province okay. or the country, but to transform your family life and be able to provide for your kids. And when your kids okay. see you working, it's a huge positive impact. Chris, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having I, me. I appreciate it, too. Chris Sankey, former band counselor with the Laxqualam First Nation. We also heard from Candace George there. Uh, she also supports uh, the the uh, the Coastal GasLink Pipeline. And the breaking news at this hour is the uh, Passenger Transportation Board has approved Uber and Lyft to operate in Metro Vancouver. So this is the long-awaited decision by the two major ride-hailing companies to start operating in Metro Vancouver. They get the approval from the Passenger Transportation Board in this hour. Just taking a look, uh, closer look at the bulletin that was put out by this board, this is significant. No caps. No caps on the maximum number of ride-hailing licenses, which is what the taxi industry was wanted. They wanted them to put a cap, a firm cap, on the number of Uber cars. It says that the board has determined that at this point it's not too prepared to impose limits on fleet size because of the experiences of other jurisdictions with Uber's operation. So Uber and Lyft approved to operate by the Passenger Transportation Board. They're not going to start rolling right away, though, because they still have to get a business license, a local municipal business license, and they have to get insurance from ICBC. But this is the big bar to clear here to get an operating license from the Passenger Transportation Board. And that has happened, finally. Let's check in now with Jazz Johal, BC Liberal MLA. He is the opposition critic for ride-hailing. Jazz, thanks for coming in. Pleasure, Michael. What do you think of this announcement? Well, I think it's great news. I think, um, you know, we've been pushing very hard, and I think the public been wanting this for a very long time. I think in regards to a transportation solution uh, for Vancouverite specifically, this is a very good day. It's one more option from, from transit and, and using your vehicle or taking a SkyTrain or cycling or walking. It's one more transportation option, which other major cities have adopted a long time ago. What I, where I am concerned, though, Michael, is that, look, this is a great day probably for downtown Vancouver, the Vancouver core. This doesn't mean that we're going to have a ride-healing, um, effective ride-healing in Richmond, uh, in my riding, uh, in Chilliwack, uh, in communities like Kamloops or Prince George or Kitimat or, or Castlegar. With that Class 4 barrier that they've put in, it's, we're, it's going to be interesting to see how many people have signed up, and I'm sure we'll have enough drivers on day one. What I'm concerned about is day 45, day 60, uh, will these people stay on to drive part-time, 30 hours, 20 hours, 19 hours, whatever it may be, will there be enough drivers to deal with the demand? So there's the, the the decision today, which I think is great. It's, it was a bit odd waiting all this time. We don't know when it was coming. It's kind of like waiting for a puff of smoke from uh, the PTB, which is a small little bureaucracy with six employees. But I'm glad they made yeah. a decision and it came out. And uh, I think it's a good day to celebrate. But uh, I still have many concerns, and particularly in Why? regards to having effective ride-hailing for the entire province. What makes you say that 
you're concerned that they would not have ride hailing in Richmond. I mean, this is an operating license for all of the lower mainland. It, no, it? absolutely. The reason I'm concerned is just having enough class four drivers to to yeah, provide that. A driver service. shortage is a driver shortage. So when you you know in your introduction, uh, you were, you were correct when you said the PTB said there be no caps. But yeah. by allowing by putting in that class four barrier, you actually are imposing caps indirectly. Not the PTB, but in this case, the NDP uh, and their MLAs doing that. Okay, I'm taking a look right now, Jazz, at a, a statement put out by Uber. And Uber says that they're happy with this announcement. We hope to launch very soon once we have obtained a business license from the city of Vancouver and we've purchased insurance from ICBC. In the meantime, they're encouraging people to get a class four driver's license to be a driver like you said they, they've got that driver shortage so they want people to get trained up to be an uber driver anybody on twitter or instagram the last probably two months has seen and they've been inundated with ads about uh, working for uber or lyft or other ride hailing firms so you know it's an issue and like i said you'll probably have enough for the first day but i worry about two months six months into this where we have placed these barriers that i don't think were needed in regards to to preserving safety and providing service so that, that is a big issue for me right now because so what you mean you could you could have a situation where you you click the the uber app on your phone and ask for a ride and there's no rides available exactly Exactly. I mean, what, what does this mean for people in Abbotsford today? A significant, a very large community, Chilliwack, those areas are growing uh, significantly. I can understand uh, the problem being dealt with in downtown Vancouver and that Vancouver core, which is uh, urban, very dense, uh, and people don't have cars. I think it's a great day for them. Um, but I'm not sure what this means for Prince George. What does this mean for Kitimat that's going through a significant growth now with LNG project, where they need yeah. more drivers, where they need uh, just the ability to get around the community? This means nothing today for them. And so we have to remind ourselves with the entire province, this is not real ride healing as of yet. It's a start and I think it's a good day and I'm, I'm a positive person that way, but I really worry that over the long term, we still don't have that effective ride healing that we're all looking for. Okay, speaking to Liberal ride hailing critic Jazz Johal, just taking a closer look at this statement that has come out from Uber, uh, they, it says here, riders may experience a longer than usual wait time for an Uber vehicle once they're up and running and they blame what you just said, Jazz, the class four driver's license requirement. So Uber already think this is great. We want to get running here as fast as we can, but we expect to have a shortage of drivers. You know, this is at its core, uh, the NDP pandering to the taxi industry. That's all this was. This is a promise to a special interest group. And who's paying for it? People in Vancouver. We've got to remind yourself, like, look, Amazon's going to be opening up their head office here. You're looking at potentially 10,000 employees. A lot of those folks aren't going to have cars. They want to live near work. Could you imagine the demand alone in the Vancouver core for ride hailing? Well, and then and then you throw in a class four barrier. What's this mean for less the rest well, of the lower mainland? Right? Uh, well, what about all the pandering that you guys did when the liberals are in power? I mean, you guys had years to bring these services to the people of mm -hmm. BC, and you guys, you guys turtled and caved into the taxi companies too. Well, At least the NDP have, are doing it. You guys never did it. Here's my response to that. First of all, it wasn't in government, but I'll explain it. What, it, what the plan that we came up with at the end of the day was the right plan, Class Five Plus. That took a lot of uh, consultation with the industry and with ride healing and with the taxi industry. Remember, when they first came, Uber just came in and started up one day. You can't do that. You have to build yeah. a framework around that. So the time was a little different, but the end of the day before the last election, we said Class 5 Plus, we're going to allow the taxi to work with them to build a, a, a robust app that, they, that can compete with Uber and Lyft. 
All yeah. of that was on, on the table. So we, we have a robust taxi industry and we want the taxi industry to be healthy as well. That's part of the solution as well, getting around the community. It's not just ride hailing. It's just not SkyTrain and buses. It's all of it. All of it matters. And so the, 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 the what we came up with the, at the end of the day was the right decision. What the NDP have done now well, with mean, this got, class four nonsense, it, it is uh, fundamentally yeah. hindering the ability to people move around throughout the lower mainland. It's not just well, Vancouver. Remember, it's a city of two and a half million people and a province of five million people. I and we've will, got to think for the entire province. I will continue to keel haul the liberals for failing to deliver these services. I take your point, Jazz, that you guys promised before the last election that you would finally deliver these services and with just a, a regular class four class five driver's license i i understand that mm -hmm. but what i'm saying is and i take i know you're just a rookie mla and you weren't <laughs> you weren't around when this was going on but i'm telling you that i covered this story for years and i watched that liberal government cave into the taxi business this industry should have been up and running years ago. But we're and, still and the pandering liberal, the to liberals, them now. The yeah, NDP well, is pandered, still pandering to them yeah, but at now, least, right? At least they've approved it. You guys never approved it when you had the chance. I take your point that you weren't there. But I'm telling you that your colleagues that you're sitting around your caucus table today, they failed. They failed to deliver these services to the people of Metro Vancouver when they had the opportunity. Let, let me ask you this. Speaking <clears> of the taxi companies, this is a bad day for the taxi companies. Not only is Uber and Lyft approved without any caps... But in this same announcement from the Passenger Transportation Board today, they have turned down, they have declined the application from Cater. And Cater was the app, the ride-hailing app that the taxi companies wanted to bring in. And yeah, that's been turned down today. Your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, so the uh, what I call Cater 1.0 was the rewrap taxis, which shut down. Um, and this is Cater 2.0, which is a more of a traditional ride hailing um, uh, company. Um, and this is initial initial initially I'm just looking at it. And to my understanding, I don't think the PTB really believed that their business model was going to work, and that's why they were turned down. I don't know if they're going to reapply, but to my understanding, the business plan commitments that Cater uh, Cater had made over the next 36 months in regards to their cash projections, uh, I think uh, the PTB found unrealistic. Uh, so they were turned down. Do you think we could see a backlash from the taxi companies and taxi drivers? I mean, we've seen some protests in other cities from taxi companies and cabbies who are very angry about this competition being introduced. Could we have some problems here with the taxis fighting back? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. But yeah. I guess my response would be, uh, did that stop ride hailing in any of these communities where they protested? And the answer is no. And I think part of the challenge the taxi industry has is one thing they haven't worked on in these seven or eight or nine years where they've been fighting ride hailing, which is working on their customer service and pricing. And at the core, at its core as well, they have to have to build a robust uh, app that can compete with Uber and Lyft. Both these companies have literally a thousand engineers on staff each that can maximize um, the drivers that are out there. They have algorithms that says, look, at 2.15 at the corner of Burrard and let's say 13th, uh, there is an uptick in regards to uh, need for ride healing. So they'll pre-position cars in those areas. So right, that's yeah, what the yeah. taxi industry is going to have to compete with. So, you know, in the seven or eight years, they could have been working on service, okay. but most importantly, building an app that's robust enough to compete with these guys. That's part of the problem. How many times I've had people call up my constituency office, look, I called a taxi, we an hour, two hours, no one came up, or they just don't don't show up. So that's part of their challenge as well. They have a customer service right. challenge moving forward, and then they have a technical challenge moving forward as well. A Blake in the West End, hi. Oh, anything is better. Um, the uh, blacktop and yellow cab, they daily drive on in the bike lanes here in the West End. They may be 
it's it's pathetic the 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 way they drive in the bike lanes with big what? signs, big um, uh, barricades, cement barricades here How at Nicola. How often do they do that? Pardon? How often do they do that? Well, you know, on our house camera, we had over counted over a hundred times alone for yellow cab. And you know, when you phone ah. them, we'll talk to them. I said they should maybe take some drivers off. So I hope okay. whoever it is, Lyft or any of them, are better drivers to start okay, with. Okay, Blake. Thanks for the call. Well, I'll tell you what. These taxi companies are going to be mad as hell because Uber and Lyft has been approved with no caps on their fleet size. The taxi companies really pushed hard to get those caps. They didn't get it. And even worse, I mean, even more salt in the wounds is that their Cater app, this is the app the taxi companies wanted to get going for for uh, their own ride-hailing service, that's been turned down today by the Passenger Transportation Board. Do you think that the taxi industry will be hurt badly, Jazz Johal, by this? You know, your question before in regards to what they need to be doing, I talked about service, I talked about technology. So first of all, they have to compete and want to compete. If their only business model is going to be challenging uh, the technology and ride healing itself, they're going to fail. Uh, If you look at other uh, communities around Canada and across North America, it does have an impact. There's absolutely, there's there's no doubt. New York, a significant reduction over the last five years in regards to uh, the use of uh, taxis. Uh, Los Angeles is the same. The systems are a little different and it's certainly different from us and different from New York to LA as well. But the overall impact on the taxi industry is, has been significant. So that's where I keep going back to. We have to, A, make sure that they are focusing on customer service, focusing on technology. And also, at the end of the day, the taxi industry has a legitimate complaint in regards to the insurance product. If they're paying $30,000 a year for insurance, $30,000, $35,000, and a Uber car and a Lyft car is paying, let's say, $2,500 a year, there's a fund fundamental disadvantage there. And that's something government needs to address. And I think that's a legitimate complaint that the taxi industry has in regards to leveling the playing field. But putting in class four licensing isn't leveling the playing field. We should be focusing on those cost issues that they have, because I think you need to have a successful taxi industry to to, to really help with transportation challenges. But uh, it's not going to be done through class four. Let's go to Bruce in Vancouver on the open line. Hi. Hi there. I'm uh, highly supportive of the decision today. I think it's great that they're ensuring that there's class four licensing so that when we get in uh, a ride, we know we're going to be driven safely. Hopefully it'll reduce the insurance claims. And it's too bad that Jazz is trying to politicize a great decision for our community where we're well behind the rest of the world. Is that what you're trying to do, Jess? <laughs> well, I think I've been very much up front uh, about uh, wanting ride healing in this in, in this uh, city, in this province. Uh, the challenge I have is that we level the playing field for both uh, taxis and uh, ride healing, and we do not put up unnecessary barriers, class four being one of them. The other one, by the way, Michael, is cost. Generally, ride healing in North America is 20 to 25% cheaper than taxis. Right. What the, the base scale that we have now, let's say you call up a cab in downtown Vancouver, you pay about $2 for your base fare, then there's a service fee, then there's a cost per kilometer and a cost per minute of about 33 cents. So you're paying about $5 just to get into the the ride healing uh, company of choice and then going to your ride. Yeah, it's not going to be cheap. No, it's not going to be as cheap as other cities have ride healing. That's the issue. It's cheaper. And when when you're you're in Maple Ridge, let's say, for that last mile to get home where you've taken a bus, you can afford to take an Uber home because it's going to be cheaper. So it helps the transit system. Having these cost barriers doesn't help either. 
Jazz Johal, thank you for coming in. My pleasure, Michael. As a liberal MLA, Jazz Johal is the official opposition critic for ride-hailing. As we continue to follow the breaking news today, Uber and Lyft approved to operate in Metro Vancouver by the Passenger Transportation Board. That announcement coming down oh, just about an hour ago. Uber and Lyft have uh, been trying to get into this market for many, many years. It's taken a long time, but they finally get the green light to operate now. The next things they have to do, they got to get insurance from ICBC. But the passenger, the uh, transportation minister is saying ICBC is ready for that. They've got an insurance product. They also need a local municipal business operating license. The city of Vancouver says they're ready to go on that, too. It could take just two or three days to turn around a business license for Uber and Lyft. Uber, just in the last hour, sending out an email to supporters in Vancouver saying they should be up and running within a few days in Vancouver. Not everybody is thrilled and happy and delighted about this announcement, though. Let's check in with Alex Hemingway now. He's an economist and public finance policy analyst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Alex, it's nice to have you on again. How you doing, Mike? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. What do you think of this announcement today? Well, uh, for me, it's a disappointment. Uh, and, you know, throughout this whole process, this big debate we've been having about ride-hailing over the past number of years, uh, we've sort of been set up with uh, what I would say is a false choice between, you know, either we have to take the taxi industry as it exists today or we have to let in these huge uh, multinationals like uh, Uber and Lyft that spend millions of dollars on lobbying and uh, we know uh, are causing problems in uh, many of the other uh, big city markets uh, where they've been introduced uh, and cities around North America and, and in Europe as well are waking up to that. The uh, huge increase in the total vehicle miles traveled, so the congestion and pollution that you get on the roads uh, are, are a big issue. You see issues with declining uh, uh, transit ridership where this comes in. This is, you know, we know we have congestion in this region. We know we have issues with uh, pollution, greenhouse gas uh, pollution as well, uh, and, and the quality of our air. Uh, the, the answer to our transportation needs in this region uh, it, it is not to double down on, uh, uh, you know, putting more cars on the road. So that's one of the big problems I see here. What, what about the problems that we got now, though? I mean, a lot of times people have got a problem, got trouble getting a taxi. I mean, if you try and get a taxi on a Saturday night down in the entertainment district or something, especially if you want to go out to the suburbs or trying to get a taxi at YVR sometimes and you go outside and there's a mile long lineup and there's no taxis. What, we got problems now. Yeah, no, I do think there, there are genuine problems with uh, uh, particularly those peak times with the system as it exists now. You know, what we've uh, put forward uh, and, and what some research I published last year put forward is, uh, you know, first of all, if we're going to uh, have this type of system, we don't have to choose between these taxi oligopolies uh, and, and the big multinationals. Uh, and, and we've actually seen uh, in other jurisdictions, uh, um, uh, for example, in Austin, Texas, they actually regulated Uber and Lyft out of the market, uh, uh, those companies didn't want to uh, comply with the regulations they had, uh, but they did allow ride-hailing. And, and what actually popped up was uh, a locally based, uh, from the local tech sector, a non-profit ride-hailing service that was fair to drivers, uh, which is a big concern here, driver wages, uh, and, and good for passengers wow. as well. Uh, the, the problem is once these guys get in, you know, they have uh, Uber, Lyft, they have very deep pockets, uh, and, and no one else can really uh, uh, fight that fight uh, once you open those floodgates. Does it give you any reassurance or comfort that the transportation minister here just in the last few minutes has said that they will be monitoring traffic congestion in the cities, they will be taking a look at how much money 
the drivers are earning when they start driving for Uber and Lyft, and they may bring in changes later. That, that is good. And, you know, one of the benefits that we have as uh, being a latecomer to this industry is that we've seen, you know, some of the big problems that come up. And it, it, it's good that we're bringing uh, this kind of transparency and data sharing requirements from the get-go. Uh, I'm just still working my way through the Transportation Board's uh, report right now. And you see they make reference to the fact that uh, uh, congestion can be an issue as well. Yeah. The, the problem is they're not doing anything about it yet, but at least we're going to be uh, uh, gathering the data, and they do open the door to down the road, bringing in things like uh, caps on the total uh, fleet right. size uh, uh, for these companies. Uh, I think we need to keep a very careful eye on it. But they acknowledge as well, and we need to keep in mind that it can be really difficult to put the genie back in the bottle once once these guys come in. So, you know, I think there's a certain naivety to saying, well, you know, we recognize that the industry brings these problems, but we'll, we'll worry about uh, I, I, regulating the specifics later. I, I put to you that I don't think it'll be the, the big problems that you're describing there, especially since the government has brought in uh, this Class 5 driver's license requirement where you got to have a commercial driver's license, and it, it takes a lot of, you got to jump through a lot of hoops to get one of those. Uber and Lyft are already complaining about a driver shortage. I don't think there's going to be Carmageddon out there because I just don't think there's enough drivers. No, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that it's uh, uh, going to be catastrophe from from this alone. But the the problems are real. Uh, the evidence is pretty clear on that from other jurisdictions. We're not the only ones that have uh, uh, put in this type of commercial uh, uh, license uh, requirement as well. It's good that we did, uh, uh, but we're, you know that's that's not brand new. So I don't think that's going to be sufficient to to deal with these congestion problems. So you know, uh, there's that issue, and and then there is of course the issue of you know what this means for 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 drivers. And you know, we have the situation. Situation where I, you know I'm not a, a, a big fan of the taxi industry uh, uh, aspects of the taxi industry as it exists as well because in many cases uh, you know these drivers don't own their own, own licenses uh, the right. majority uh, of the drivers are shift drivers as as uh, as they're called and they're paying license fees to the owners of taxi licenses and it's going to be the same for for uh, uh, drivers driving for Uber they're going to pay Do that you? 25 30 percent fee uh, to to the these companies now I, I think that uh, ex- Extraction of value by these companies, whether they're a local oligopoly or these big multinationals, uh, is a problem. That's why you okay. know we've suggested a, a nonprofit approach. We, we got thirty seconds, Alex. Does this mean I guess you won't be putting the Uber app on your own smartphone? No, I guess I won't. I did try it once uh, in another city. You know, of course, it, it, it it's nice great, to move right? towards app-based transportation, uh, uh, but we should do it on a, a, a non non-for-profit basis. Okay, Alex. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Alex Hemingway, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, not a big fan of these uh, companies. The big story we're following for you at this hour, Uber and Lyft uh, approved to operate in Metro Vancouver by the Passenger Transportation Board. Took a long time. How much longer will it take for these services to get up and running? Well, Claire Trevena, the B.C. Transportation Minister, uh, held a news conference a short time ago. She was asked that question. Here's what she said. Well, Uber and Lyft now have the go-ahead from the Passenger Transportation Board, so it's up to them to start working on getting their uh, insurance. ICBC is ready with the insurance product. It's up to them to get any any municipal business license they may need to operate. Um, So as quickly as they can go through these uh, steps, they'll be operating. And uh, just wondering, what are your thoughts about the fact that so far for the capital region here in Victoria and some rural areas that we haven't really seen anything approved? Well, the 
Passenger Transportation Board still has more than 20 applications, and those applications are from companies that want to operate right around BC. I know, believe there's something more than a dozen on the island alone. So uh, I think that we will be seeing over the coming uh, days and weeks uh, more applications being approved for the rest of British Columbia. Okay, as BC Transportation Minister Claire Trevena, let's check in with Ian Tostenson now, the CEO of Ride Sharing Now. He's been lobbying and, and uh, pleading for these services for a long time. I suspect he's pretty happy today. Ian? It's like uh, Santa Claus just came, right? And <laughs> yes, Christmas yes. is, this is awesome. No Christmas one has to January. hit the refresh button. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is a really, uh, this is a historic day in British Columbia, I must, must say. Okay, what are you most happy about? Well, you know what? I guess, you know, let's have the kudos to the government. They did get it across the finish line. It took longer. But, uh, you know, certainly for, you know, Metro Vancouver initially, I think that people that um, have experienced ride-sharing, they get it. The people that haven't, um, they're going to be so surprised at the convenience of this, the certainty of this. Lifted a uh, study last year, Michael, that showed um, about a $33 million economic benefit to the city of Vancouver around uh, in, in increased uh, transportation uh, opportunities. So uh, it's going to be great, the hospitality industry, getting to your restaurant, getting home. People, you know, there's no reason for anybody to drink and drive or do cannabis. Uh, the employees of hospitality can get home. So it's going to be a real game changer. Um, it's going to take a little bit to get it smooth, for sure. Yeah. But um, the, the applications and the implications of this are massive. Okay, I, I wonder how confident you are that the service will be as convenient as as you hope it will be. I, I take your point that for anyone who's used these services in other cities, and I've used them in several other cities, it works great. I mean, it, it's pretty cool to just click your uh, an app on your smartphone and your ride shows up in five minutes. That's pretty awesome. But I wonder if that's the level of service we will receive in Vancouver because the company, at least Uber, is already warning that there could be delays here because there's a shortage of drivers. Yeah, so that's, a, that's that whole issue of Class 4. Yeah. Um, I think what will happen now is that people get excited. I just talked to my, my son. He said, I'm going to head out and get my Class 4. This is actually happening. So hopefully we can populate the drivers more. I wish it wasn't Class 4, but it is what it is. That's probably not going to change for a while. I think the bigger issue is how fast the municipalities can move to embrace this uh, and i think by and large most of them will i think there's going to be some interesting stories to come with surrey uh the mayor versus uh, the yeah. people live in surrey and maybe burnaby but apart from that um i just got a note from one of the companies that felt they could get up and running within a couple of days in vancouver because uh, the vancouver licensing guys uh over at city hall are ready to go so it's going to be choppy but i think that's I'm predicting it'll be a little smooth. I think the, the, the pressure points of, of service, um, put it this way, I don't think that, I'm pretty certain that Uber and Lyft won't operate their brand if they don't feel that they can deliver uh, on a service. And that's why you're, you're not seeing anything in Metro Victoria right now because of lack of drivers. But I think they feel confident to launch in, the, in Metro Vancouver and have enough uh, drivers to be able to handle you know, that on-demand. I want, I want to ride now. Uh, uh, opportunity. Speaking to Ian Tostenson, ride sharing now, Uber and Lyft approved to operate in Metro Vancouver. I, I would think that, I bet you Uber will be rolling by next week in Vancouver and you'll be able to summon a, an Uber car on your smartphone. I'm not sure how long it'll take to get your ride because I think there will be some growing pains and shortages here at the beginning, but it looks like uh, they'll be up and operating 
next week. We've put out a call to the Vancouver Taxi Association to see if they can come on the show today, and we're hoping they do. What do you say to the taxi companies that fought tooth and nail to keep these services out of Metro Vancouver, Ian? Well, they, they did. If you, What's really interesting is how much depth, and you can see why it took so long, the Passenger Transportation Board uh, took to review these applications, and they dealt with market impact. And it's interesting. Every one of these applications were vehemently opposed by none other than the taxi industry. So um, what I say to the taxi industry is get competitive. Um, do what you do is right. Um, you know, treat the customers the way they're going to be treated with Lyft and Uber and be competitive. I mean, they still have a, a, a they have a very large, they have 100% of the market share right now. And it's theirs to lose. So um, be proud, be bold, and be assertive, and don't sit around and stop complaining about this equal playing field and stuff. The, the bus is left. Let's get on the program here because we want to see in uh, a, a healthy tax industry because a lot of people will, won't do ride sharing and they will rely on the tax industry. So, you know, come on, guys, just get in the game here. They've had eight okay, years but, to do it. Now it's time. But will the taxi companies be able to effectively compete against Uber and Lyft? Because if the Vancouver Taxi Association was here right now, they would say it's not a level playing field that Uber and Lyft are not going to have any maximum caps on their fleet size. They'll have no limit on the number of vehicles they can put on the street. The taxi companies have a very strict limit on the number of vehicles they can put out there. The the, Uber and Lyft will have no operational boundaries. They'll be able to go anywhere in Metro Vancouver. The taxi companies can't cross municipal boundaries. How are they supposed to compete? I think what's going to happen, Michael, is you're going to see um, ride-sharing services will come into play when we really need it the most, when it's like concerts and big events and where there's absolutely so much demand because the drivers just won't be there. If there's no demand, you're not going to see any Lyft or Uber drivers uh, on the app. They don't just drive around looking for business. They, they go hunting when the hunting is good. And so when it's not, then we rely on our tax industry, which is more of the structural mm-hmm. side of moving mm-hmm. people. So I think there's enough business to go around here. Um, what we're seeing now is, is a whole bunch of new business of people that uh, will you know, ditch the cars and, and take ride-sharing and otherwise didn't do it before because they couldn't have the confidence to, uh, to drive to get a ride. Um, but also um, you know, people sharing rides and people coming out that weren't. So it's going to increase the supply of people actually on the streets, and I think there's going to be enough business for everybody to succeed. I'm hoping there is. I'd, you know, I'm not one person that wants to see the tax industry hurt. But I also want to hear the tax industry. I know they talk about, we can't do this, we can't do that. But if you talk to the BC Taxi Association, they have an entirely different view than the Vancouver Taxi Association. So they really need to sort of get all the ducks in a row and and be uh, and bold competitors yeah. to a changing landscape. How, how big do you think this will be for business? I mean, in addition to doing the ride-sharing stuff, you're also the head of the Restaurant Association here in BC. Yeah. I've spoken to restaurant owners uh, and you've certainly spoken to a lot more of them than I have, but I've heard stories from, you know, like a guy who owns a, a restaurant in downtown Vancouver. They have out-of-town visitors and tourists, and the guy's standing there at the front of the restaurant madly clicking the Uber app on his phone, trying to get an Uber ride, and then he has to break the news to the person, oh, we don't have it here, and people are just, <laughs> some of the tourists are just astonished. How big do you think this will be for, like, let's say the restaurant business? Yeah, big, uh, you know, world-class food service, everything else going out. By the way, we can't, you know, we can't get a ride here. So uh, it's going to be uh, really significant from tourism point of view. It's going to be significant from employees' point of view, being able to get them, you know, as you know, we talked about the labor challenges that the, in our whole economy has. 
But being able to get employees uh, to and from their homes uh, a lot easier is going to be uh, will be fantastic. It gets stranded half the time right now, especially on weekends. Um, and it, you know, the, it, so I know that um, during Christmas there was we did a straw poll. There were probably in excess of 250 reservations of various sizes that were cancelled uh, between Christmas and New Year's because. Uh, there's no ride sharing and people had the expectation that there was and they said not forget it because we're going to get stranded so you're going to see an increase in business for sure and um, and that'll be good for for our industry it's also going to have an impact i think on the the um, um, this tremendous growth we've seen in home delivery of food i think this is going to curve it a little bit because now you know you can get to your restaurant and get home to, uh, from that restaurant versus, well, I can't, I'm not confident in that, so I'm just going to stay home and order my food. So I think it's going to change a lot of dynamics. Ian, thank you for coming on the show today. Pleasure, Michael. Happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's Christmas in okay, January. Buddy. Ian Tostenson, ride sharing now. An Uber and Lyft approved to operate in Metro Vancouver. That's the decision from the Passenger Transportation Board, the two biggest ride-hailing companies in the world. They do get their operating licenses from this board. They still have to get a municipal operating license, though, and insurance from ICBC. Now, BC Transportation Minister Claire Trevena earlier today said ICBC's ready to roll here. They've got the ride-hailing insurance product ready, so that should not be a problem. Meanwhile, in the city of Vancouver, just checking Twitter, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart saying they're ready to go with the business license, too. They could turn that around in two or three days. So I think that means you should be able to call an Uber car on your smartphone, probably in Vancouver, next week. But what about the other cities in Metro Vancouver, notably the city of Surrey? Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum is a big supporter of the taxi business, and he has said he will not allow ride-hailing to operate in the city of Surrey. Can he really do that? Let's check in with Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman on that. She's concerned about it. Hi, Anita. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks a lot for coming on. First of all, let me get your reaction on the ride-hailing Uber and Lyft approved. I know this is something you've been hoping for. We're absolutely thrilled. Uh, we've been longtime advocates of ride-sharing, and it's happening all over the world. We need transportation options, as you know, in Surrey, and uh, ride-sharing is going to be one of those options. Do you think that Surrey is underserviced by taxis, transit? Like, why do you need these services in Surrey? Well, transit and transportation options in Surrey, you can fit Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby in our city limits. We need different ways to get around. Uh, the taxi industry can only um, service our area for a certain amount of time during the day. Um, and, uh, you know, we absolutely need uh, different ways to get around, and that includes ride-sharing, to have that vibrant night culture, for example. Uh, we're trying to make Surrey a music city destination, ensuring people can get a ride home and uh, with the move by the metro mayors at the end of 2019 to vote for except for one uh, to have a, a regional ride sharing license uh, business license system um, is uh, a positive move yeah i think that's uh, makes a lot of sense to have a single license for the entire region in the meantime though we still have individual municipal licenses required the city of Vancouver says they're gung-ho, they're ready to go. As we know, in Surrey, it's not the same story with Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. So he doesn't like ride-hailing, he wants to keep it out of Surrey. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, we're hoping that uh, he and local government decision makers uh, will uh, make sure that we have ride sharing. We need it. We want it. And uh, the rhetoric that Surrey doesn't want ride sharing is absolutely yeah. false. <laughs> uh, the province, um, as you may have heard from Minister Trevina, has said that local governments can enact rules and unique fees around drop-off and parking. They can make it difficult uh, for the ride sharing industries, but they can't deny licenses to companies. So what I'm most concerned with is that we can delay, delay, delay in Surrey whereas uh, the rest of Metro will have ride-sharing and Surrey won't until we get this regional ride-sharing business license system. When do you think that regional license would be up and running? Well, they're saying not until the end of the year when the framework is going to be ready. Yeah, that's not good. Not good. That's not good. So what about, have you talked to Doug McCallum about this? Well, I mean, we talked about different transportation items at the end of June, and uh, he stays steadfast and resolute about not wanting ride-sharing in Surrey. I haven't spoken to him since then, but uh, I know he uh, does not agree with the Surrey Board of Trade. And uh, I wait and see what happens because, uh, number one, our business community, our economy needs it. Uh, Our young workforce needs it and wants it. And uh, uh, we're uh, just, uh, you know, we're just thrilled that they got their license for both Uber and Lyft today. Okay, you're thrilled, but Doug McCallum is not. What's the deal with this guy? Why is he so opposed to ride hailing? Like, Like when he said... And you mentioned it already that I believe at one point he said, oh, the people in Surrey, we don't want ride hailing. You know, people people here don't want it. I'm like, what's this guy smoking? Of, cor- of course people want it. Why, why is he saying these things? I have no idea, to be honest. Uh, he hasn't uh, really articulated it. I mean, he said that it's a safety concern. Um, it's more safer to be in taxis. Uh, but both taxis and ride-sharing uh, industry vehicles are, are both safe. Uh, they both can coexist. I mean, we do need a level playing field for our taxi industry, absolutely. Um, and we're working on that with the provincial government, advocating for that. But uh, I have no idea why he says the things that he says about ride-sharing. Okay, speaking to Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, is there any indication that Surrey City Hall is going to refuse to issue business licenses to to ride-hailing companies. Like you said, the provincial government has already said, look, you you can't keep these companies out of of Surrey. But the mayor has said that he's going to try to do that. Um, Is there any indication they'll actually follow through on that and refuse to issue business licenses in Surrey? Well, I haven't heard anything specifically. Uh, My fear is that it's going to be delayed and delayed until the end of the year. And, um, I mean, uh, bylaws need to be enacted, rules need to be enacted by the city of Surrey and needs to be a full council decision. And um, I think in Surrey it's going to take a little bit of time to get ride-sharing on the roads. Do you think uh, you represent the Board of Trade? Do you think ride-hailing will be good for business? Absolutely. Our business community wants it, and they need it, and uh, they're just absolutely thrilled. And uh, we have 6,000 member contacts as uh, as our members uh, for the Board of Trade in Surrey, and uh, it will be good for economic development. It will be good for us to bring business into the city. Uh, we're having a delegation uh, to Silicon Valley later this year uh, to try to co-locate businesses uh, in Surrey. Uh, and they want ride-hailing, these Silicon Valley uh, workforce 
uh, groups. So uh, we, we absolutely need it for good economic development for the future of Surrey. Do you have any fears at all that it could be a victim of its own success and create traffic congestion, which is already a problem in the, in the city of Surrey? Some of the people who are opposed to this industry say, you know, be careful what you wish for. It's going to be Carmageddon out there. Do you have any worries about traffic congestion? I don't. I mean, uh, people are going to use their own existing vehicles that they're using already on the roads. Uh, Ride-sharing is all over the world already, and I mean, there are congestion issues in all urban centers. We have to monitor that. Ride-sharing is only part of the solution in terms of um, our whole congestion uh, piece. Uh, We need good transit options uh, and and, and good uh, technological uh, transit options uh, in our city, in our region, in our province. But ride-sharing is one of the ingredients in the overall recipe to move people. Okay, what's your message to the mayor? Well, our message uh, to Mayor McCallum is uh, we need ride-sharing. We need ways to get around. Don't block it. Um, Please work with this industry. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That is Anita Huberman. She is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. She's a big booster of ride-hailing.